Hi everyone, this is Arthi from Human Chapters. I'll tell you a little bit about Human Chapters. Humans are living narratives with the past, present and future. These narratives constitute of a number of chapters across a lifespan. The aim of these conversations is to highlight a chapter of the narrative and unpack its connections to other chapters. I don't care whether people are natural storytellers, but I truly do believe each one of us has a worthy story to share. An acknowledgement to country, we acknowledge the traditional owners and custodians of the lands on which we are. We pay respect to their tribal elders past and present and emerging. We celebrate the continuing culture and we acknowledge the memory of their ancestors. Today we are speaking to Katharina um, about her late ADHD diagnosis. Um, welcome Katharina. Tell Thank us you Auntie. About you. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I just, um, so I'm, yep, Katharina Baker, living on uh, Eden Farm in uh, Victoria, near mm. Newmerca, not far from Shepparton. Um, I, uh, at the moment, are working in a social enterprise called Eden Farm Wellness. Uh, we help people with um, disabilities to learn new skills, find purpose, um, gain confidence, um, even set up business for themselves, um, help them get work in the community or on the farm. So we do all sorts of things with them across the farm. We do art programs, craft, um, paddock to plate programs and cooking. So all sorts of things, um, whatever they sort of, whatever they, they like, their NDIs, whatever their goals are. And uh, yeah, that's what we're doing. Uh, we also run festivals on the farm. So we organize those. Uh, I help Gary out on the farm itself. And um, yeah, enjoy spending time with my husband, Gary and my daughter, Ruby. So um, very, very busy at the moment. Um, I love cooking, gardening, and um, and photography is one of my big things, and art. Beautiful. So, Katharina, let's, um, and we will actually talk about the spring festival that's coming up, but we'll talk about it towards the end. Um, before we head there, tell us about your journey. Tell us what ADHD is and what led you to getting that diagnosis? Mm, okay. Uh, so I was diagnosed around 10 years ago. It was the end of 2012. I was 43 years old. Um, it came as quite a, a shock, but also uh, a revelation and quite and an explanation, I would say. Um, it, it gave me some uh, insight into uh, the person that I that I was. I was able to begin a bit of a journey of understanding who I was. Uh, what led to that was that I had had um, some struggles in school with learning quickly. I was um, particularly with things that complex tasks and big projects. I was not able to. I didn't know how to break them down into small sort of little tasks, mm -hmm. um, and I would become inundated and overwhelmed quite quickly at school. Yeah. This also extended into the workplace as well. Um, there was all sorts of things I would do to compensate. Um, I'd often would <clears throat> work really long hours because uh, I felt quite guilty for this and um, just would try to give back um, a lot more and bend over backwards for people. We became a bit, become a bit of a people pleaser, which is not really good. Um, and um, I guess put yourself, you can, you know, I put myself second, I guess, in a lot of situations and that, that's not good either. Um, I knew that I had some gifts. I have, was uh, very highly creative. I could produce incredible art pieces. Um, I picked up photography very quickly. I was self-taught. Um, uh, you know, I was very good with the technical side of the camera, but also the creative side, composition. Very good at calculating light and how I could adjust, uh, you know, my settings very quickly, manually, um, for any sort of environment, changing of light and that sort of thing. So I knew I, I was also actually really good at mathematics at school. I really loved mathematics. Um, my mathematics teacher, one of them wasn't helpful when I said to her I wanted to be a maths teacher when I grew up. She laughed at me um, because at times I could be inconsistent. So if I was um, lacking sleep um, and not doing particularly well and overwhelmed in other areas of my life, that would play out um, perhaps in a maths test and I could essentially fail a test um, when I was highly capable of doing very well. So I didn't understand all those years what was going on with me. I knew something wasn't right. Mm -hmm. I felt in, in, some, in some respects I felt like I had a disability. In other respects I felt like um, I was highly capable of yeah. achieving anything. Um, my father um, really believed in me. He wanted me to be a doctor and he chose all my subjects in high school. So I did all, all science right through to year 12. 
um, and not that I really wanted to. I felt that I wasn't strong enough in those, although I actually did really love them. And I wonder whether had I been diagnosed back then and that perhaps um, being offered medication, that could have made a big difference. Um, it was a real struggle back then because ADHD wasn't even defined in the 80s. So um, I want to make sure I keep um, the, timing, the timing right and answer your question. So it was quite a big revelation. It, it started a journey of self-discovery and self-love. I had to learn to love myself all over again and yeah. also forgive people that had hurt me. Um, there was been a lot of bullying in the workplace um, and misunderstanding. Um, in the workplace often there's, you know, there's deadlines and of course um, bottom line often is dollars and so people don't um, have time for people with ADHD. Um, and other neurodiversities. Yeah. And um, Katharina, before we actually talk about uh, what happened at the time of diagnosis, if we can backtrack, I would love to um, just know this for my own understanding. So when you were at school and whether it was primary or actually even I don't know if you are able to remember back to uh, a task in primary school, anything that stood out that you wanted to do, but it was very difficult um, to get that task done. What was that like? Yeah, what did you do? And who supported I you? Actually, in primary school, was um was easy. I had, um, in primary school, I didn't really struggle at all. In fact, I remember in grade six being told, uh, Katharina, you really should be, uh, in the more advanced maths um, class. Yeah. Um, I think now most girls are not diagnosed, the onset is around 12 years of age, whereas boys can be diagnosed as young as seven. Yeah. Um, girls have, um, often girls can be misdiagnosed too, but um, I didn't actually have a big struggle in, in primary school with anything. I tend to pick up most things. I do remember having a bit of a struggle with long division because there was a little okay. bit to it. Yeah. 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 And, um, and I'd gone to a couple of different schools too. So I, I missed learning that. And uh, that created a bit of an issue because if you didn't have that, you couldn't move on to more complex things. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I had some wonderful teachers that would spend time. So the thing in the world, I think with ADHD is people are, are needing to spend um, more time with people yeah. with ADHD um, mm-hmm. to ensure, and there's gotta be a lot of paraphrasing and, and making sure people understand the concept um, mm-hmm. before they move on to bigger, build on that. So, yeah, I didn't have too many struggles in, 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 I think there was primary schools, a lot about, you know, exploration and art and, and that sort of thing. So, and I was always very good at those things. Okay. Mm. So, so what, It was more so, of an issue in high school. Yeah. Yeah. So when you said that you felt like you had a disability, but at the same time, you felt highly capable, did that realization or that sort of feeling, um, did you discover it in high school or was it? end of primary school, jumping into high school, because that in itself is a steep jump. Yeah, um, I lost my mum um, when I was uh, 13. So there was, um, there was grief there as well. There was also trauma. So there was, it was difficult to ascertain what was what. That was, mm-hmm. that was not really, um, we, and we didn't delve, I didn't delve into that until years late until I was 30, uh, long after I lost both of my parents. Mm-hmm. So it was because, yeah, but in high school, I, I knew there was something a bit different about me. Um, I, I wanted, I loved mathematics and science, mm-hmm. but I just couldn't seem to, um, you know, I couldn't absorb the concepts and run with them like other people could. Yeah. My stepbrother, I remember, used to come home and do an hour of homework every night, and he did science as well. Yeah. And I think commerce and possibly law, those sorts of subjects. But he would do an hour of homework and be off on his bike, and I'd still be going, and it was real drudgery. It was extremely... Um, cumbersome. I was not able to get on top of it. I didn't know where to start. I don't think we even had diaries or I said no one ever taught me diary management in school. We didn't have a mobile phone to keep ourselves organised. Um, yeah. And my mother was gone. She just died. So I was just in a very sad place, yeah. <laughs> to be honest. Um, I felt a bit different, but I didn't know what that was. I didn't know whether that was because I was a little, I was grieving the loss of my mother or was it something else? So, yeah, unfortunately, it might have been difficult for anyone to understand um, that mm. there was something else going on because of all of those other things that were happening at the time. Yes. But yeah, I knew, I knew, I knew something was happening, but I really didn't know. I couldn't put my finger on it. Probably, probably year seven. Yeah. yeah. So that was high school. And was there, so you've talked about maths and science concepts. You found them difficult to absorb um, and get started. So what did you do to help yourself or did it, did it, anyone else realize 
Um, so with um, mathematics, I was extremely good at algebra because algebra made total sense to me and it was pretty easy. You just had to find X, right? You, yeah. So you knew that, you know, with certain equations, you had to eliminate everything around to find X. So that to me made total sense. It was easy. Um, calculus was a little bit harder. I had to understand and absorb these incredibly, um, what felt to me quite, um, obscure equations and formulas that didn't make a lot of sense. But once I was able to memorize those equations um, and do a lot of practice, yeah. I could master anything. So I remember having a calculus test coming up and I really enjoyed calculus. I knew I had to do an incredible amount of um, study in order to achieve a similar mark to anybody else. So I, I think I spent about three weeks only doing calculus homework and study, did no other homework for any other subject or very little, just totally neglected that in order to prove that I could do calculus and yeah. ended up getting quite a good mark at 70 something percent. Uh, you know, the genius in the class, uh, James got his like 98 percent and um, others didn't do too well, some of them. So I wanted to prove that I could. I think they were quite shocked. And my teacher said to me, you must have cheated. So that was a bit of, yeah, that wasn't really nice. So, but that's how it looked on the surface of people with ADHD. They looked like they were somewhat um, slow but on the other hand, they could achieve if they were given the time. So I think that's where the education system doesn't actually help people with ADHD. So we can go into that later if you like. Yeah. Um, okay. And then coming to or transitioning to a workplace. Um, mm. Did you, uh, was it after uni? Was it after high school? What was, um, yeah, what was that workplace? Um. My first job, I was working for the Melbourne and Metropolitan Board of Works in Melbourne. Yeah. Travelling from home from back of Smarch every day. Yeah. I really embraced new things and loved a challenge anyway. Mm. Um, but I, I, I guess I was struggling with time management. However, I remember finishing a lot of my work by about 10, 11 a.m. So I was quite speedy once I understood the concepts. I could really barge through things really well. If yeah. I understood and I had a major interest in 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 the in the, in, in the topic or whatever i was working in the area and, and and i did but once i mastered something i used to i found in my life once i mastered something i became quite bored with it i really needed a challenge okay yeah but the initial learning in the workplace so a new job was always daunting to me because there was people to um, get to know there was processes and systems in place yeah. there was um the actual work itself and so there was often a lot of a lot um against against me in a new role um yeah. and and that was that was and a lot of you know you need your frontal lobes to function in in a particularly with a new job because you've got so much to learn so yeah. where adhd is recognized as a learning disability that became a real struggle because i couldn't um absorb and process things um quickly enough mm. in order to to um to meet deadlines and expectations initially. So I used to do a lot of extra. I would take work home. I've always done that. Yeah. Um, and in order to get to a point where I was um, able to show people that I could do the job you know, and do it well. Yeah. I'd always compensate, yeah. Yeah, okay. Um, and we will go into this later, um, which will be about how do, you, you know, what are some of the things workplaces can do as of now to learn about understand if they do have an employee with different needs um and it's not so much the capability the capability side of things but more that in it task initiation or understanding of the concept or you know and we'll come to it um very soon so then what led wh why did you think it might have been ADHD or what triggered that particular question? Yeah, wow. Uh, a few things I struggled through. I never had any problems with finding work. Mm. Um, I was having some bouts of depression, but my dad had just died in a plane crash in 1993. Yeah. So we weren't, um, you know, doctors and therapists weren't too sure whether what I was going through was trauma related from abuse earlier and um, was it uh, you know the grief I was experiencing part of that mm. or was it something else so I was treated with antidepressants from 1999 my dad died in a plane crash in 93 1999 yeah. while working for the um, uh, United Nations in Vienna I uh, had a wonderful job there working for um, the Office for Drug Control and Crime Prevention it was called back then yeah doing uh, essentially graphic design and I loved it um, because it was arty, I was able to, um, you know, produce some great work in very quick timing. I had a major interest in it. Yeah. So 
my boss at the time actually was quite amazed. He'd, he'd come to me at one point and said, um, you produce more work in a day than many others do in a whole week. So um, I, want, I want bosses, I want employers to realize that people with ADHD are not a um, just a sort of lost cause. They actually have, can be placed in certain areas and utilized where they can shine and they can produce amazing output for the organization. Mm. Um, but it's tapping into their skills, how they operate. And a lot of, I think people are not quite there yet. There's a lot of stigma still. People are not really understanding. Mm. I know that there's still a lot of people that are not willing to come out and talk about their neurodiversity, whether it's ADHD, ASD or something else, or even tell their boss that they have some depression. People are not willing to talk because there's so much stigma still, which is really a, a, a real pity because yeah, people with ADHD and ASD and other things can be such a, an asset to, to, to people, to employers. Um, I'm sorry I deviated a little bit. So I'll just go back. I'll just say that, um, uh, yeah, so that job at the United Nations, I, I had some depression. My boss at the time uh, loved my work, but he said to me, oh, I think you've got a bit of depression. Um, he could see that I was a bit up and down and struggling sometimes however he really wanted to keep me so he said come and talk to my wife she has depression you know she just takes this little pill every day and she's fine so i did that and then from that i was then i went off to see her doctor her psychiatrist um and that was suggested i thought all right i'll do that um you know because i'd had days where i was crying and i mean i would cry for days on end um and i was still crying for my dad my mum. um you know i was homesick for australia i was in vienna so I went to see somebody and she started me talking and she's listening to my life story and mm -hmm. she's I'd like you to go away and just get a couple of pages together of what's happening to you and what's happened to you in your life so we can put it all into some sort of chronological order and start working mm -hmm. through things and she said how have you ever got have you got through all this on your own I said well I just believe I had this faith and I believe that um your life is not meant to be that hard. And if things are that hard, then something's not right. I, I, I always knew it was important to try and get my ducks in a row and remove all the log jams. So I was forever trying to do that. Um, I came back to her and she just wanted me to type up a few pages or write a few pages, but I ended up producing her with 30 page, a 30 page document of my life um, and things that were affecting me right now and things that were uh, a, bit, a mess. Um, and I said here, you know, sort me out. Um, and she immediately put me onto a, an antidepressant. And I stayed on those from 99 for the next about 11 years or so. So I was falsely diagnosed. Uh, and she was a leading psychiatrist in, in Vienna and uh, Austria, pretty good with their background in psychology. So um, yeah, so it, it wasn't until I go back to Australia that, um, and I had my first beautiful baby, had Ruby, um, that I started to um, realize that I was just, running around in circles, not able to get things done very well. And I seemed to be starting something in the house and then I'd find something else I needed to do and start it, not finish the first one. Mm. And a lot of people said that was baby brain, you know, after having your first baby, that can happen or any baby. But I, 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 thought, I thought it was something more. I, I just wasn't able to tick off my task at the end of the day very well and I was only getting a few things done. However, there was a lot of struggles. I lost both my parents and I was a single mum with Ruby. So mm. it, was a, it was a very difficult time. Um, yeah, and then soon after, um, I got diagnosed end of 2012, I think because I, uh, my sister said to me, oh, you know, um, one of her sons had been diagnosed. Um, we looked at our parents and thought maybe mum had, had ADHD, possibly dad even, we're not sure. So um, I went off to see whether that might be something. By the way, I was having therapy at the time and an amazing doctor in Sydney, she actually didn't pick it. But so people can go to a general psychiatrist or GP and it may be missed even today. So it, it's important to go to the right type of doctor to get, mm. if you seek a diagnosis here. Yeah. So um, he, he talked to me for a few minutes. He said, although I need to do all these assessments with you, I can tell straight away you have ADHD, high functioning ADHD. Um, you're quite a miracle that you're still standing. I'm quite amazed and he's he, he your script. <laughs> so we had to go through the right, process to have the right um, diagnosis of course in that session but he knew straight away yeah okay and that's really interesting um you know earlier in our conversation you said that uh females are diagnosed later with adhd and it got me thinking it's a very similar sort of um, standpoint with autism as well and are females just better at masking and yeah, well, I have a few things to say about that. I think um, 
been a bit of an issue with women um, getting diagnosed later in life. They're kind of treated in society, but also by psychologists as if they're a seven-year-old boy with ADHD. Mm. But it presents very differently, particularly if they have the hyperactivity component. Yeah. Women with ADHD, particularly if they have the hyperactivity component, they don't ha always have that, mm. um, will present often with uh, a, a hyperactive mind. Yeah. So in their, in their body. Whereas a seven-year-old boy or a 10-year-old boy, you might find him unable to hold his parents' hand, unable to sit still, yeah. um, unable to just sort of comply in society. He might be climbing trees mm -hmm. um, and jumping off at a crazy height or um, just incredibly hyperactive in his physical body. So the physiological um, symptoms are really easy to see in a boy. Mm -hmm. The girls might be sitting in class in, you know, early high school daydreaming a lot and they may also glaze over they may not realize it but they've just missed you know um some major instruction from the teacher on what to do next for on a project or something a team a team exercise mm -hmm. um they may miss major mathematical um initial explanations and therefore unable to move on with the task to yeah. learn to do some pre-learning or um yeah they may miss instructions and the problem with that is that they then can't complete the task and often they'd be too embarrassed to say so yeah. Um, that's what happens. But yeah, often the girls are, they're seen as being daydreamers. Um, they actually, I think that girls and women actually can present um, very similar to women who have um, Asperger's, quite very similar mm -hmm. on the surface. Yeah. And um, I'm realising now there's some comorbidities with ADHD, such as ASD and other things. But um, yeah, they do. And I don't think they on purpose mask their symptoms. I think it just happens because they don't know what's happening with them. Yeah, and they want to be. They want to have normal peer relationships. That's mm -hmm. so important as teenage girls or boys yeah. and girls. They want to be treated like anybody else, and so they kind of think that they're just going through what everyone else is going through. It could be hormonal or you know problems at home or whatever. And yeah. so the girls just tend to. They're very good at um, putting on a brave face, and that that's just typical female um, in the world today. Like, you know, mm -hmm. there's a lot of women still just having to try and reach up and, you know, they're still trying to prove themselves in this world that's essentially still often a man's world in a lot of cases. So, um, yeah, girls are kind of seen as, um, um, they don't want to create a problem. They don't want to be an issue to people, to society. They don't want to be a burden to society. They don't yeah. want to um, cause a problem in their family or anything. So, they, yeah, they just try to... Uh, just sort of um, go through life and not, not create too many waves. And, and that's why I think they get, they get misdiagnosed or, or mis, misdiagnosed mm. or not diagnosed at all for, late, for a long time, which is sad. Um, no, thanks for sharing that. I think, yeah, what resonated with me is um, that idea or the concept of a hyperactive mind versus a hyperactive body or, you know, it could be a combination of the two, but that's a really good sort of way to compartmentalize mm. that hyperactivity component. Um, okay, so Katharina, now that you received the diagnosis, what did it, what was that particular moment like mm. and from there on? I just want to go back and say one thing. I'm very sorry, Artie. I just want to say with the hyperactivity in girls, you might find that they bite their nails and they bite the quick and the skin around and they might be bleeding or they might be jiggling their leg or something. So those little hyperactivity traits are also now considered part of that whole spectrum. Oh, it's not really a spectrum, but they see that that, that can be a real sign of having ADHD too. They may not be running around like crazy seven-year-old boys, but they, they yeah. can do that. So that's, and I did all of that, so. Yeah, okay. But anyway, so sorry. Um, at that point, um, being diagnosed. So it was, um, for me, it was just incredible, um, yeah, revelation. I think I said before, mm. um, it was an explanation um it was just a major eye-opener i was uh i felt relief yeah i felt sadness incredible grief at the little girl who struggled mm -hmm. um because they're being um sorry there have been so much abuse and misunderstanding and um and bullying mm. um that I was able to go, I just had to go back and just love the little girl as she was. Um, yeah, because God, know, 
your nose I tried so hard so difficult for people I guess um, diagnose prior to about the mid 90s or late 90s because they um, it wasn't even defined like there was no major definition of this thing um, the DSM, the latest DSM, the Diagnostic Manual, doesn't really describe things very well either. And a lot of the leading psychiatrists in the world are aware that um, it's still not quite right because when you talk about um, inattentiveness and aren't able to be you know, unable to focus, it's often because of so much in the mind, so much happening in the brain, that it's difficult then to um, put things into compartments. It's difficult mm. to sort through that and filter through what's important for today or this moment in order to do this task. Uh, recall is an issue and executive function. So if you can't hold on to certain things and then use them later, if that doesn't work very well with you, mm. then, then it's very hard to function in the, in the light of that. So it's not so much that you're, you just have this um, inattention issue. It's more that there's, um, it, there's a problem with that regulation as well. Yeah. So everything's made sense to me when I got the diagnosis. I thought, right, okay, I know who I am now. I know what I'm dealing with. I read and I looked up, you know, all the major doctors in the world that knew anything about it. Dr. Mm -hmm. Hallowell in the US, he um, has ADHD. Um, he um, doesn't have medication. He chooses not to do that. Um, Dr. Um, Parker, there's um, quite a few doctors who have um, a lot of knowledge and, bark and, and, and Dr. Barclay or Barclay it is he's um incredible too so I looked up all of those guys read up on everything they knew about it read lots of academic journals about it mm. um started exploring I did an amazing course at Macquarie University in um New Sydney yeah. um for people who were diagnosed later in life you had to have a diagnosis first and you could go and do this great course and mm. they helped us to to learn how to work with our strengths mm. and how to use tools to overcome each day and how to just how to go about, um, it gave a strategy to deal, deal with everything. Yeah. So that was really good. Yeah. So I just, I, I felt like I've been diagnosed later in life. I felt like I'd lost, you know, a few, a few decades in, in some respects. Yeah. Um, I had to do some grieving over that. Um, forgive, forgive people over that. Even people like my father who had, you know, literally bashed me around the room, threw me against the wall. And I used to wee my pants on the floor and lie in my urine because he was so angry with me that I couldn't understand mathematic concepts and formulas in his perfect timing. So I had to go back and learn how to forgive him because I couldn't carry that bitterness into the future. That wasn't going to be helpful for me. Yeah. Um, and I did that. So a lot of learning. Um, I went on and did some uh, study after that in nursing and was amazed that with medication, I was able to get above 90% in most of my exams and tests. Um, the mathematics component of that, I got a hundred percent in. So that was a great feeling to be able to achieve like that. Yeah. Yeah. So that was it. I just had to move on because I was diagnosed later in life. I had to move on and make the most of what time I had left. Yeah. Yes. That's incredible. Um, Katharina, I reckon before we move on to the next part of it, we might go on to the second link. Sure. Yeah. All right. Mm -hmm. Okay, so um, Katharina, we stopped at you talking about um, pursuing studies in nursing and actually, um, yeah, that feeling of achievement you received with the high scores and 100% in maths. Um, tell us about, so since that diagnosis, you initially talked about that part of the journey being a self-discovery and self-love journey what what did that look like and what did that mean to you okay um well i think prior to our diagnosis um there'd be a real struggle with um loving self because when you're letting people down and letting yourself down constantly uh with being late mm -hmm. um with um not being able to um uh, perform i guess other people's standards um and not, or not quick enough. That was always the issue in this world. It's not quick enough. You know, you're not um, not quick enough. So that was the issue. Um, I think I was um, 
Ah, tell me the question again. I'm so sorry. Uh, no, that's okay. Answer properly. Sorry. Yeah. No, that's okay. So um, my question was, what was self-love and self-discovery um, like for you? And what did it mean to you after the diagnosis? Mm. Okay. Um, well, I had just done about um, up until diagnosis, I think I'd had just done about eight years of CBT therapy. So I'd learned how to, each morning when I woke up, I'd learned how to um, not consider taking my life, but mm -hmm. instead to consider um, my, uh, who I was. Um, I have my faith. So, um, you know, I believe I'm, um, you know, here for a purpose. And uh, I had to do some cognitive restructuring every morning. Mm -hmm. uh, I had to consider that, um, you know, who I was, I was um, worthy, important, I was loved, I was lovable, lots of affirmations. Um, but I had a good solid, um, you know, 11 years of therapy behind me. Yeah. So I was able to really um, just run with it. The self-love thing had always been a battle though. So I still today have yeah. to diarise and put in my calendar and in my diary times to, um, to uh, for me, just for me. So time to um, spend time with the animals, to do art, yeah. to exercise, all of those things that, at times became secondary. Yeah. I had to make sure what would happen. And they had to become a task. And I had to turn, I have to turn off all distractions during those times because Gary might need me or Ruby to do something. Um, I need to make sure that I'm able to go away uh, and do my art and, and to get the most out of it, you know, uninterrupted. Um, and that's, that's really, really important uh, with ADHD because anxiety levels can be very high mm. with this thing. Um, with or without medication and so those times of um of relaxation um, meditation or whatever it is are, are really really important yes. yeah so that's 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 what i did i i uh, i just have to make sure right from diagnosis particularly because with the medication it actually took about five years to get the medication type right and the dosage right i had aneurysm surgery in the middle of that so there was a time where i couldn't have any medication yeah um so, but spending time with animals, hence beautiful Lucy here and the rabbits and other animals is really important. Um, people with ADHD generally are highly creative and very good with animals, have a, quite an affinity with animals. Yeah. And they should always uh, tap into those amazing things and, and do them and spend time with animals. They're really good therapy. That's... Oh, I hope I answered your question properly, yes, sorry. Yes, no, no, that's um, totally okay. There's so much. I think it's a very dense question and it could... There's a lot to unpack from there. Um, but no, thank you for sharing what you did. With the morning routine that you kept practicing, what did that look like? Um, so for, for a long, long time, um, even today before um, having medication, um, in the mornings I take medication the minute I wake up, I have to. Yeah. Um, I still have um, n some negative um, thoughts and unhelpful thoughts um, that used to stay with me all day, every day up until diagnosis. Yeah. Um, I'm aware that these thoughts are unhelpful. They're not, um, they're not real. They're lies and that I have to, um, um, yeah, I just, the, the self-love in the morning upon awakening is really, really important. And it, and it really works um, to, uh, there's a number of different things. So I can listen to the birds outside the window. So just, I guess, um, you know, get in, in touch with and, and uh, align with creation um, is, is, is a beautiful way of doing that. And, yeah. um, and that's, that's what I do. So I have to do that. Um, it's interesting that the minute I take my medication, probably within about half an hour it kicks in, I don't have any of those negative thoughts at all. So the medication actually um, helps calm a person with ADHD. It does the opposite to someone who ha doesn't have ADHD because mm -hmm. uh, it's a stimulant and it's um, um, pretty heavy medication. Mm -hmm. um, and it does, it just, it takes away all of that. It boosts, you know, dopamine into my brain and I feel instantly um, like I'm, you know, worthy and I have reward, I feel great and ready to take on today, which most neurotypical people have instantly, which is wonderful. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's really important. That morning routine is really important, those affirmations. Yeah. Yes. Oh, that's beautiful. Thank you. And now let's talk a little bit about Eden Farm and the things you mentioned before. 
Um, tell us how that wellness program developed and what it is that you do within it. So the wellness um, program was uh, set up because I saw uh, there was a need in the community for people with disability to um, tap into their, their amazing gifts. Uh, disabilities could be anything, cerebral palsy, Down syndrome, um, they may have ASD, ADHD, other comorbidities. Often they'll have um, other things like depression, anxiety. So the farm obviously is a beautiful place. It's uh, very um, relaxing to be mm -hmm. on the farm with the animals and with the birds. It's just a beautiful place. Yeah. So it was the ideal. When Gary and I met, uh, I had just launched a little business in, in Sydney called GLOW, which stood for uh, Grow in Life with Opportunity and Wellbeing, uh, to help people to recognise um, their own, own gifts and use those, tap into their own gifts and then um, hone those gifts, develop them further, use those gifts then in business or in the workplace in order to um, blossom and bloom um, themselves. I believe if we're all using our own gifts um, to, to serve others and to help others, then um, it doesn't feel like work at all. Right? Um, I guess um, that's what we wanted to do. And Gary said to me when we met, well, you could just bring that here to the farm. You could do that here. And I thought, oh, I'm not sure how that's going to go in regional Victoria because uh, we're not in, a big, in the big smoke and, you know, who might want to tap into those services? I'm not too sure. Yeah. Um, but I started putting it out there and advertising. I put myself onto Mabel, which is a, a, like an online agency for support workers okay. and other people nurses can get on there um, and started talking about it. Uh, it was developed for, um, but I, I used all those art gifts that I had and the photography just to set the set it up and decide I would just do those programs with people that wanted to do those programs. So I wouldn't just offer um, support work to anyone just wanted to come on the farm and, um, but the, the, I wanted them to be involved in those programs. So it was for people that really wanted to do that and wanted to build a little business for themselves or, you know, learn some new, new gifts if they didn't know. Some people didn't even know they were creative and now they're making beautiful jewellery and all sorts of things, um, cooking amazing things in the kitchen. So it was more to um, just to help them. We wanted to set up a social enterprise. Yeah. So most of the people that come through have NDIS funding, which is fantastic. That then helps us to continue to run those programs. Yes. We do programs too. Gary as the farmer, some yeah. of the boys that come want to be farmer for a day. That's the program that we could we call it farmer for a day. Yeah. Um, they go around with Gary. I'm with them as a support worker to make sure they're safe and we're doing everything properly. Um, that they're being looked after, reaching their NDIS goals and personal goals. Yeah. And they love it. they absolutely love it. It's been great. And the idea now is to put those items, the jewellery and the different um, art pieces they've made and also sellable items from the art pieces, so cut, beautiful greeting cards and things, um, online onto, onto our websites and different um, networks to sell them for those people so that they can then make a profit. And all profits go back to the artists. We don't make any money from that. And the festivals as well as part of that as well. So Yes. And before but, we go on to talking about the upcoming festival, Katharina, one of the things I was wondering about, um, so people with dis disabilities um, in whatever capacity or conditions, usually um, other allied health professionals might be involved, a speech pathologist or an occupational therapist, nursing, it doesn't matter. Um, but do you get an opportunity to communicate with them or do they communicate with you? Is there that sort of partnership? that's happening um yeah tell us about how that works yeah absolutely um so we um yes i'm in touch often i'll, I'll take clients to their their appointments with them yeah uh, i tend to get quite an insight into their needs and where that you know that might be helpful for them so i can support them through that yeah. um we also have um people come and do talks and they and the family baker family oh. been doing that for some time so nutritionalists or um or um um acupuncturists i think they've had uh, naturopaths as well um come to the farm and and give talks for the community um because the family have eaten farm produce and we've been um, helping people with um, healthy eating and also getting their gut bacteria right and all those sorts of things for some time they've had some connection with with some of uh, some allied health people yeah um but yeah, that we, we're thinking we're going to have a um, some sort of event, some events in the future where people from Allied Health would come here 
um, and do talks and things like that. But it'd be amazing to be able to set up appointments for people with disability here on the farm where um, OTs and speech pathologists could come to the farm and have their appointments as well. But any sort of collaboration like that is, is, is welcome. And um, yeah, that'd be fantastic to do more of that. We haven't done much yet, but it'd be really good. Yeah, and, and it is as it develops and people get to know about it because um, even within my work um, at the school, uh, being a speech pathologist at a few different schools, I would love to know what happens out of school. What mm -hmm. is the child's life like out of school? What are they doing? And it's just because communication is everywhere. Uh, mm -hmm you know what daily functioning is everywhere and every day mm. so yeah it makes sense to know about functional activities people are involved in and things that they enjoy doing mm. how they are able to yeah. access it yeah absolutely i think it's important too to be sharing our uh, as long as it's confidential and, and, and the client or participant um, is, is okay with it, to be able to share progress notes. Um, I think that I've seen that really useful um, uh, with a couple of clients who have a psychologist, an OT, uh, support coordinator, a LAC, um, and other people involved in their care, like a multidisciplinary care plan, um, that everyone's involved and everyone's aware of what's happening and can see the struggles, they can see the the, the victories and, and what people are overcoming, what's working for them, what's not working for them. I think yeah. if we're all in together, working together, it's a much better, uh, much better for the client, for the person with a disability. That's we're not reinventing the wheel constantly and we're able to move forward with their goals uh, a lot quicker and more effectively. Yeah. Just yeah, um, more cohesion for everyone that's a part of this, you know, the individual's life. Um, that would be Absolutely. awesome. And um, Katharina, the other question that I was meaning to ask, which I had forgotten, was mm -hmm. having had the ADHD diagnosis, um, how do you, what does daily living mean like right now? And how do you manage different things in different parts of your life? So people say to me, oh my goodness, you guys are doing amazing things out there on the farm and in the shop. You've got so much going on your plate. And uh, how do you fit all of that in your day? Um, well, it's, um, it, it is um, often people with ADHD, they may cram too much in um, or they may need and they may need some diversity in their day in order to stay incredibly interested. Yeah. Um, and it's not their fault if, they, if things aren't of interest to someone with ADHD, it's very difficult to them to then um, to focus on, on that. Um, and, uh, medication certainly does help with that. I need to plan out my day. I have to um, make sure I don't put 50 things on my to-do list because I have a tendency to do that. So yeah. I do have a very long to-do list that might have about 50 things on it. But each morning I prioritise that and I put the most important things to the top. Yeah. And if I can get through the top five to ten things in the day, I need to then give myself some reward at the end of the day, um, which is, um, you know, just sitting back and just doing some watching TV, um, with, with honey, with my Gary, or just um, having some family time, making sure that I do the things I love, spending time out in the garden, on the farm, doing some, going to a little photography shoot or something like that. Um, those rewards are really important. The creative side is really important as well. So I have to I have, to have a to-do list. I allow myself um, enough movement within um, a, quite a strict framework of what I'm allowed to do in my day to myself. I give myself a bit of a quite a strict um, some strict boundaries and what I can and can't do so I don't go outside my to-do list but I allow myself a lot of um, variation and creativity and, and, and scope to move around and change that list if I like. Um, I don't have to do anything particular first, I might do something later. I know that about my medication lasts till about 2.30pm then I have to take a top up that like gives me another four hours. So at that time things start to wane a bit and I know that I'm going to be a little bit not quite as um, um, good at sticking my to-do list. So that's the time when I need to go out and just relax a little bit for a little while. So I'll have a bit of a break around that time to allow the other med to then kick in again. Yeah. And uh, I'll try and get the things that are more, I guess, um, uh, things that are more demanding in that there might be a little bit more um, mundane. I'll try and get those things done in the morning mm. um, and allow myself to do more creative work in the evening. That's when I'm highly creative, when my medication's worn off. I don't want people to think that um, medication um, dumbs them down creatively. It doesn't. Um, it's just you go about things a bit differently. 
but yeah, I try and I use my phone really well. I, I love smartphones, have an iPhone and I use the, um, the alarms. I probably drive a few people crazy. I have incredible out of alarms going off all day. Really important things that I cannot forget will go in there. Yeah. And then I have the to-do list. I have the shortened to-do list or I reprioritize the top priorities. And then I have to, whenever an appointment or something comes in that I have to remember some sort of event, I have to put it in my calendar immediately mm. with a number of reminders. And if I have those reminders happening all day, I generally then won't forget anything. Yeah. So um, sometimes I might double book something, not like I certainly used to do prior to, to diagnosis. I would double book myself, if not triple book myself. Yeah. Um, it's really hard. So there's all sorts of little tools you can use. Yeah. So that's my day. It's um it's made up of um hitting my task list. I'm very task oriented. I need to achieve those things in order to feel good anyway, and that helps with reward and dopamine. Mm. Um, medication plays an important part in my day. Diet does, gut bacteria does, because it's a great um, gut-brain connection. We're aware of that more and more. Mm-hmm. So eating well and making sure I alkalize and have lots of, eat lots of foods that help my gut bacteria is really, really important. I can see it very in tune with my own body and mind, so I know what works and doesn't work. Yeah. Uh, if gluten gets in, because I have gluten intolerance, that can really affect me. And if I have a cold or a flu mm-hmm. that, ups- that makes my head a bit more foggy than normal, that then can upset things a bit more than most um, other people because it affects frontal lobes and the sinus whole that whole area is affected but I have learned to go easy on myself mm. and uh, to have a day off and just relax it is incredibly important for me to get to the beach every six with six to eight weeks that rejuvenates me like nothing else and if I'm a bit stressed I'll use white noise or even pink noise it's a bit softer okay. to help all rain, rain noises is important there's a beautiful cd called uh, music for dreaming that I've been using since um, when I was pregnant with Ruby Uh, ABC produced that and it was available in the ABC shops up until recently but I think you can still get it online and on Spotify music for dreaming it's the first CD not the second one yeah that's an amazing amazing piece of music it's a composed by Melbourne Philharmonic Orchestra Philharmonic Orchestra Orchestra. it's all all Brahms um, you know lullabies and it is um, composed a help that sorry they put it together with a psychologist it's really quite powerful yeah I'll go and listen to um you know, there's a few people I like um, to listen to or just do some meditation, just um, mm. listening to, um, yeah, different things. I pray as well. Pray yeah. really, pray really helps. And uh, if you're a believer um, of any faith, really, I think prayer is really powerful. Um, and, um, yeah, That's I hope I answered your question okay yes, too. Yes, yes, you did. You did. Um, I was just, yeah, curious as to what... The day looked like how you managed it and um, you also talked about what made you feel good and I think that's important because as humans we are constantly in search of what's making us feel good um, and when and yeah that's I think and for me helping other people tapping into what my gifts and skills were honing those developing those and using those to help other people it gives me incredible purpose and satisfaction in life and i think that's where it's at if we make out if we have a mission in life and that is to help other people first before ourselves not denying ourselves of our basic needs of course but ensuring that we are safe at all times in non-toxic relationship i think some people are in toxic relationships they're not able to feel like they can't get out that's a really hard starting point to try and deal with all this stuff they've got to be in a place of um surround themselves with people who who love them and want to support them and want to bring out the best in them. It's so important to do that. Um, And surrounding yourself with, with whatever makes you feel good. Yes. But um, you know, alcohol won't actually won't, won't help. Um, It's a depressant, so it's not going to help. But a lot of people with ADHD over the years have self-medicated with alcohol and drugs. Mm. uh, And that's a a dead end street. So um, want to be able to give your body and your mind the best possible opportunity to be the best um, that it can in your life. Um, the, the tagline for Eden Farm Wellness is your best you. So we want people to be able to become the best version of themselves in mind and body. So, yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Um, and tell us about this upcoming spring festival. What, um, yeah, what led to the idea? I know it's been happening for, it was meant to happen in 2020 um, and then COVID happened. So, mm. Tell us um, our mission in Eden Farm Wellness, if people wanted to go to the website, which is edenfarmwellness.com.au, if they go to uh, About Us or to the mission area, you'll see 
that we started Ethan Farm Wellness with the view to help people from um, multi, so from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds, as well as people with disability, as well as First Nations peoples, because that was our really that's what we, we they're the areas that we've worked in. I've done a lot of work in that area, particularly. Um, Gary had grown up with um, people, First Nations peoples, Indigenous peoples, and I'd worked with people from all over the world, the UN, at OPEC, it's International Atomic Energy Agency. In Darwin, I worked with Aboriginal kids, and I love that work so much. I always felt I had an affinity with people from other nations and countries. I just felt that they were, they had so much to offer and so much colour, this beautiful tapestry of life, and I really wanted to help people that, um, from different cultures that perhaps were struggling with kids or kids that had um, you know some neurodiversity as well so that's another area i'd love to get into more too i think there's a lot of people needing that help in our region i think we have like 90 different culture groups in the murray goulburn region okay. so that'd be amazing to be able to help some of those kids and those families mm -hmm. um i just had this affinity one of my most beautiful friends i ever had in vienna her name was maria she was slovakian uh, she spoke very little English and I was still learning German and she was just the most beautiful friend ever. So we didn't have that that barrier, that communication, not being able to talk to each other was not a barrier for us. And um, so I just think that you, um, you know, where there's love and there's passion and joy and people helping people, um, then, um, you know, you don't even need to have uh, a perfect um, cultural understanding or even a perfect um, language that communication doesn't have to be a major barrier but of course it does help yeah so anyway that was our background we wanted to try and do something that would help people and because of covid we thought well why not have some festivals because we can move everyone outside yeah. um, that would get the community together so gary and i when we got married a couple of years ago organized um, a, a, a sunflower festival we've done that now two years in a row that was really really successful and reached a lot of people made a lot of people happy because everyone loves the sunflower mm. uh, and then we thought to do a multicultural festival which was really different people thought why that well because we wanted to get people outside we had the space still we knew there were so many culture groups in the region we had the beautiful farm space. Um, we had the know-how. I'd done events before, graphic design, promotional work, and public relations. Uh, Gary's great on the farm, and he's great with people too. It yes. just fit. It just it was a great fit. We had an amazing skills, a great skill set together to do that. So we went for it and really hit this loan, uh, this grant application really hard, yeah. um, and spent many weeks doing it. And we were we got the eleven thousand dollars. We'd put in for thirty. We got eleven. That's okay. So um, that's where we were. And it should, yes, it should have been run last year in June. It was cancelled and September cancelled both times due to COVID. So here we are running it in three weeks time on the 23rd, 24th and 25th of September. And we're going to be celebrating um, cultural diversity uh, in the paddocks under the Milky Way all together as one. Um, and it's going to be absolutely beautiful. So celebrating across food, beautiful food, music and all the arts. So gorgeous craft products on sale as well. So we're really looking forward to that. That's wonderful. Um, thank you for sharing that, Katharina. Before we do wrap up, um, is there anything that I haven't asked you or thought about delving into during this conversation? Um, do you want me to talk about the um, some key takeaways? Yeah, yeah. So that will be the final question, yes. Yes. Oh, you were still going to ask me that? Yes, yes, that will be the right, right question. But oh, yeah, sure, we'll do that a bit later. Yeah, um, anything else? Yep. Well, I'll just have a quick look in my notes. I, I, I wanted to, uh, something I just put on Facebook the other day, sometimes I get these little poignant little things that come to mind. And I think, oh, I need to share that. Yeah. Uh, sometimes I, I think, oh, maybe do I really need to share? Sometimes I can overshare, but, um, you know, my friends have been my family having not had my parents around for a long long time and have beautiful friends and family in vienna um, in darwin in cairns in, in victoria and sydney uh, in the us the uk and south africa all over the world actually i'm quite blessed with the most beautiful friends and family i've just yeah i've had some beautiful people come in my life so but it's hard to communicate. Um, the big thing with, with ADHD is difficult sometimes for people to communicate because often they can be in a bit of a state of uh, confusion. Um, they're trying to people please a bit too much um, and they sometimes feel quite let down or just overwhelmed with life. Um, and I think that's because, and I've just written something, I'm going to read it out. I think it's because um, 
the fact that we don't communicate and sometimes not very good at catching up with people or staying in contact either because often we're just totally overwhelmed but it doesn't take someone with neurodiversity to be overwhelmed often people with neurotypical neurotypical people who are neurotypical also feel overwhelmed it's not just people with ADHD yeah. but often we we sort of um yeah, we just feel it's just all too hard to stay in contact with everybody. But I think it's because they, they're still trying to, often they're trying to get their head around the reality of potentially having ADHD or a new diagnosis. Um, you know, trying to get medication and dosage right. They're often highly anxious, incredibly frustrated and very sad that the world feels like it's falling apart. Um, they think they're responsible for all that is challenging them and all that is challenging all of their relationships. Yeah. And they often despise themselves because they feel they're letting everybody down and people do turn their back on them. So that makes it so much worse. Um, people, um, there's a lot of stigma and people don't just don't seek to understand when they could, they could read more about it. Yeah. Um, and that's the battle with ADHD. Um, a smart, creative, capable, lovable, loving, optimistic person who has so much to offer the world, but has a dopamine depleted brain that continually lets them down. Yeah. And that's how it feels. Um, they often love work, they love school, they love their friends, love their family, they love art, love learning, but their capability is often limited due, due to the disabling effects of their suffering because mm. they're always often suffering. And what can the world do in that? Um, I would um, hope that people would tend to reach out more and, mm. and do less judgment. They would love them. Um, people would educate themselves um, uh, about how having this debil debilitating thing called ADHD impacts them. Um, because the world is still quite judgmental um, and often um, there's not a lot of um, idea or, or about ADHD they don't understand and there's no or very little compassion um, and celebrate um, people's gifts with them so that's really really important um, so I'd say that was um, that's about it really I just would encourage people to um, never give up keep searching for an answer if they know something's not quite right with them keep searching if they can't afford a diagnosis, at least read all about ADHD, find out some tactics and strategies for dealing with it. Um, we're aware that there's a lot of women go misdiagnosed and they might get into their 40s, 50s or 60s before they get a diagnosis, which means that's a really big chunk of life to suffer unnecessarily. Mm -hmm. um, so just keep believing in yourself, never give up and keep searching and keep educating yourself on these things to try and find out what it is, whether it is ADHD or not. Yeah. Um, and keep um, finding, trying to find people who are accepting of you for who you are. Yeah. Yeah. And learn to and, and love yourself for who you are. Yeah. That's right. And be on that path. Um, thank you for sharing that, Catherine. I think that's really powerful. And yeah, we, because there are so many, I think people in general are different. It doesn't matter. Mm. I, yeah, we, you know, we say we compartmentalize them into neurotypicals, which I, you know, if you have that functioning brain, but at the same time, like we need to be more accepting of just people. Mm. Right. Um, and the, right. all that differences, that's right. Everyone's so, so, and what a boring place the world will be for all the same. <laughs> that's exactly right. And final question three to five key takeaways for anybody in the world listening to this conversation? Um, so I would say um, the education system isn't working for a lot of um, um, students and kids at uni level or right through from primary right through to uni level um, where <clears throat> they're needing to uh, comply in a classroom and sit still and, uh, and learn a specific way in, in certain timings um, that are not right for them. Sometimes it's just the learning uh, of the new things that they need help with and a bit more time with once they've got it yeah. and it's sustained because there's no problem with long-term memory with ADHD whatsoever. Mm. So once the, they've learned whatever it is they need to learn, there's no issue with that person anymore generally. So um, I think different education systems would be great for neurodiverse people. Um, who learn differently, different learning environments in the workplace for new employees, um, people um, to be more loving uh, and understanding, uh, to understand the impact of ADHD on the person who has ADHD. Mm -hmm. uh, there seems to be quite an emphasis on how ADHD, people with ADHD affect others, but no, not quite as much on um, how ADHD people are suffering within. And I think that's a key. Um, the highest level of suicide is with people with ADHD in the world. That's the statistics. Yeah. So they're suffering on the inside, on their own. And that's dreadful. 
Um, so yeah, that non-judgment, judgment, um, that attitude needs to stem across school, work, places, um, churches, therapy, all institutions really, everywhere in society. Um, the five key takeaways in addition to that would be um, stand up for what you believe in, um, use your passion, your empathy and skills, because people with ADHD have amazing empathy for other people who are suffering and also for animals, um, and use those skills and creativity to help people who are suffering in some way and help them. So they make great nurses, um, entrepreneurs, they can, there's a lot of things they can do. Um, and this gives them amazing purpose and drive. Um, don't listen to the finger waggers who tell them they can't do this and that. Mm -hmm. um, take the judgment with a grain of salt that they see in the world. Um, seek to surround themselves with loving, encouraging people and forgive people for misunderstanding because some know not what they do. Mm -hmm. um, those who are unhelpful may need to be distanced, distant for a time, distanced for a time. So people who are making terrible comments within family or workplaces, um, it might be an idea to set a boundary and not have any time with that person if they're not able to um, be helpful with their comments. Um, they should uh, seek help and therapy and uh, find out what gives the person harmony and peace. Uh, seek a diagnosis and medication um, as that may work for many people and never ever give up. I think that was my five. Yes, it was. Cool. Well, thank you so much, Katharina, for taking the time to share your life chapter. Um, and for anybody listening or watching this conversation, it will be available on YouTube, um, on the Human Chapters podcast, and also on the Human Chapters Facebook page. Uh, please feel free to share it. I will share um, Eden Farm Wellness uh, website on the show notes and a flyer for the upcoming festival as well. Awesome. Thanks, guys. I'll see you later. Thank you, Martin. Thank you so much for that. Wonderful.